millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the director of MEMA provides an update on tornado recovery and discusses a new program to house displaced residents. Then members of the immigrant community call on ICE to release a man detained unexpectedly. Plus, Mississippi student activists organized to raise their voices against gun violence and send a message to policymakers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Temporary lodging assistance is being made available to residents who are displaced by the deadly tornadoes that ripped through parts of the Mississippi Delta and the northern part of the state last month. The partnership between Mississippi Emergency Management Agency and the Red Cross is in its next phase of disaster recovery. Stephen McCraney is executive director of MEMA. He shares more on the disaster response with our Michael Guidry. We're trying to make sure that uh, housing... Uh, we have some type of sheltering uh, for individuals. Say, if you lost your, your entire home, uh, we want to get you in a shelter-type situation where we can take care of you. And that's where uh, we have uh, partnered with the American Red Cross uh, for them to assist us with the disaster case management to be able to do that. Uh, and uh, once we get people taken care of, then we're looking at them to register. Every person that was impacted uh, needs to register. That will get you in the system, will get you rental assistance, uh, uh, eligibility, uh, and then also some uh, other needs assessment. We have a joint field office here now in the state of Mississippi with FEMA and MEMA and all the other federal partners that are partnered together. So now we're starting to look at once we have people sheltered, we have some type of, uh, uh, whether it's a hotel room uh, that they might be getting some rental assistance for, uh, some way to have cover over their head, and then uh, ability to provide food for their family. Now we're rolling into the next phase, which we look at uh, what is that long-term housing, mid- and long-term housing look like, uh, well, what type of grant could they may have gotten from FEMA. The, we start looking at public assistance where we're helping schools rebuild. Uh, we're looking at uh, uh, water plants. We're, we're looking at electrical uh, how is it back on in the community? And, that, and that's going to judge whether or not which way we're going to have to go with the housing program. Can we get them back closer to their residents uh, where they can uh, have an opportunity to oversee the uh, the rebuilding or the repair thereof? 
uh, and how soon can we get them right back in there? I'd like to kind of roll back with the temporary housing that uh, that is now available through that partnership with FEMA and the American Red Cross. What are the eligibility requirements for that? Is, is Are those just the residents that were affected by the March 24th storms? Because, you know, those are the ones that are in this part of the process. And then if so, like what um, I, I know they go through registering with FEMA, but, you know, before that, what are some of those eligibility requirements in case people are wondering if they are eligible for that temporary housing? Yeah, it's the you know the first thing to to, to look at the FEMA side is of course register. Now, in the beginning of the storm, of course, we're we're doing local shelters and uh, uh, the American Red Cross is already on the ground assisting with temporary uh, rental assistance in uh, some of the hotels and whatnot. But uh, you're right. Let's, let's go back and, and with the survivors who have to live in one of those uh, six federally uh, de- declared counties uh, on that first disaster. So that's kind of the one that we have actually partnered with uh, the American Red Cross and FEMA to actually do disaster case management. Now we're going to get into what I call the tailoring phase is where I have to tailor sheltering. Uh, and the American Red Cross has been out there hand in hand with us doing these assessments. And it just made great sense not to redo and recreate this uh, to take the partner that we already have, already has a lot of demographics and a lot of information. And also they have an agreement with the FEMA system. So anybody that's registered, we can find out who's registered, who has not. And then we can really get our disaster recovery coordinators on the ground to go and target those areas that that we might, might not have heard from people and they might not be registered to make sure that they do. So in this, within the residents in the six counties, survivors in the six counties that, that are in need, the way the hotels have been, been selected how, how these, and these agreements have been made, uh, is proximity a factor when, um, when determining who gets uh, assistance and where so people can maintain jobs uh, and, and do the things they need to do to kind of personally recover? Absolutely. You know, you want, you want to try to get uh, the survivor as close to um, the the home life and the travel to work and whatnot as they were. I mean, because obviously they picked that place to live. They they have built their job around that place, their family, the schooling and everything uh, that goes along. We really try to uh, uh, keep them as close to uh, that that semblance of life that that, that we can. And uh, you know, the uh, uh, Red Cross is, is is standing by with us to make sure that we. We, we have that area, that information. Like in Rolling Fork, I'm very um, uh, not, not, not well suited to have hotels uh, in that area and whatnot. But then you look at Gulf uh, Greenville and a couple of other um, opportunities that we might have, Vicksburg. We're, we're trying to keep them close to their community because that's where they grew up. That's where they are. That's where family is. And uh, it's definitely targeted uh, toward those uh, areas. And then lastly, uh, funding. I know this this is a contract, uh, an agreement that's worth up to $11.6 million, uh, and it's all eligible for FEMA reimbursement. What is the outlook of that being a 100% uh, reimbursement from FEMA? And if not, what are what are the, the contingencies uh, in regards to funding? Yeah, we're, we're always going to look at uh, the state and our affected areas, and I have a, a few areas that, that are, are, are definitely um, – not as prosperous as others, and 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 we are asking for 100% reimbursement because uh, some of these communities uh, do not have the resources that others do, 
And as, as far as equity goes, I, I am a person that if you're a citizen in the state or you're visiting during the storm, we're going to do our best to take care of you. And, and that's my pledge. So we're going to ask for the 100% reimbursement. What we're prepared for, and we talked with the legislature before they adjourned, uh, we gave them a guesstimate of how much uh, funding that we would need uh, to get us through uh, this storm response all the way around to January when they would maybe come back into regular session again. So we sat down and uh, from our past uh, emergency experience and, and response experience, we were able to come up with a uh, what we call was, was a good number of, of funds to be able to get us into this program and get us around. And then we also have our disaster trust fund that uh, the legislature gave us many, many years ago. That the bottom line answer to the question is we're asking for 100% reimbursement. We are prepared for FEMA to come back and uh, tell us that it is going to be 75-25. So we would have a 25% match uh, here, here at the state side on that individual assistance that happens there. And we, we are prepared and ready for it because of uh, what the legislature and the gov uh, state government did for us. Well, Stephen McCraney, Executive Director for the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, thank you so much uh, for, for taking some time to explain where we're at and some of the new oppor uh, recovery opportunities and, and relief opportunities uh, for, for the residents affected by the storms. All right. Thank you so much. Currently, more than 500 Mississippians are residing in local hotels due to the tornadoes. Coming up, members of the immigrant community call on ICE to release a man detained unexpectedly. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From children's education to gripping drama, documentaries to comedy, MPB Television brings the world to Mississippi. With local stories, cooking, health, and music, MPB Television takes Mississippi to the world. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Members of Mississippi's immigrant community are pleading with custom officials to release Baldomero Oresco Juarez. He was originally deported following the 2019 ICE raids at Mississippi chicken plants, but was returned to ICE custody until the agency approved his probationary release. Roreno Queros, director of the Immigrant Alliance for Justice and Equity, says during that time, Juarez obtained a legal work permit, driver's license, and Social Security card. Quiroz tells our Kobe Vance Juarez was detained without warning during a court-required check-in at the ICE office in Pearl yesterday, and it wasn't the first incident of its kind. So we've been hearing reports in the last two weeks uh, where people are coming in for routine check-ins, and ICE has been uh, keeping them, has been detaining them. Um, this is the first time that we've actually followed up. A lot of our folks are still fearful, and this happened to be a leader who's been working with us. His wife um, did not show fear and said, hey, let's go out there and see what we can do. But this is not the first time in the last few weeks that, I, that we've heard has been at least four people that have been detained, and we've had other community folks um, also sharing that they've heard that too. Is it legal for them to detain someone who's coming in to do a routine check-in? Um, 
Well, is it legal? It's not ethical. It's not moral. It's unfair. They determined DHS, which is ICE. You know, one, ICE is one of the offices in DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, determined that Baldomero Orozco could be freed. And so he boarded a plane and came back home to Mississippi. And so this was a determination made by the federal agency, and now a local ICE officer is choosing to keep him here. So it's, it's very unfair, it's unethical, and the procedure, you know, was to go as planned as for him to be with his family until um, he was able to get his, his case before the court. At one point he was undocumented, but now he is not. Is, is that correct? So right now, Baldomero uh, has a permit to work. Baldomero also has a driver's license, a Mississippi driver's license, and he also has a social security. So he, he's actually here working with documents. Quiroz describes Juarez as a leader of his community in Carthage. He has a wife and two children. During their conversation, Juarez's wife approached Quiroz shaken and upset. She shared her pleas while Quiroz translated. I went to pick up my child from school. Because I remember the first time that they deported his, his father the first time. He suffered a lot. He had to speak to psychiatrists. And I want I want them to let go. I want them to let my husband go. As you see, I can't. I'm, I'm using these crutches. I'm in a car. I had a car accident and I can't work. If this is unjust. We ask everybody to please support us, to please let people know that this is not fair. They've detained my husband unjustly. He has a permit to work. He just renewed his permit. And we want... To let him go. Por favor, Governor Tate Reeves. <laughs> Governor Tate Reeves, please, I implore, let my husband go. Él es el único. He is the only <laughs> he está trabajando. the only one working. Yo no estoy trabajando por mi situación. I can't work because of my situation. The organization is asking ICE to release Juarez so he can provide for his family and continue his probationary process. If they do not let him come home today or tomorrow or the next couple of days, uh, what they're going to do is they're going to transfer him either to Madison um, or and then to the detention center in Jenna where he will be um, waiting his trial, which is something that like I said before, that DHS and ICE said that he could do while he was with his family. Um, so he'll be over there in the detention center waiting to see the judge. How long, that could, how long could that be? I mean, you know, it could, it could be they have a date of 2024, but then if they don't have an interpreter, if, 
if it's a remote conversation, if he's sick, there's so many things that can extend for him to be, you know, sitting in that, det that detention center in that cell for an extended period of time. And this is, and it was horrible. And as you see here, his family need, they need him. His children need him. Lorraine Okiros is director of the Immigrant Alliance for Justice and Equity. Coming up, Mississippi State activists, student activists, organized to raise their voices against gun violence and send a message to policymakers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Connect with the people looking to connect with you. Become an underwriter with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. For more information, go to mpbonline.org slash more slash underwriting. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. High school students in Mississippi are calling for legislators to take action in response to a rise in gun violence. Recent mass shootings in Tennessee and Kentucky have prompted protests in academic spaces throughout the country, one of which was held last Wednesday in Vicksburg. According to data from the CDC, Mississippi had the highest gun mortality rate in the country in 2020. Paul Winfield is a junior at Warren Central High School and a member of the Students Demand Action Group. He tells our Lacey Alexander that the student-organized sit-in protest was a message to government officials. They are scared and demanding change. I think that it created an extremely meaningful and impactful environment. Uh, it forced everyone to really think about what the reality of this in, in our country. I mean, three nine-year-olds died just two weeks ago. Um, and in Nashville, they're more worried about the Congress people protesting to get more gun, gun reform. So we're fighting for common sense gun reform and, and for people to be able to start this conversation. You know, it's really, really taboo and, and obscure to talk about school shootings in school. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's just a hard conversation to have because we're forced to go to school. You know, there is no option. We can't avoid it. We have to go into a school building every day. We have to learn. We have to leave at 3.30, you know. But it's hard. It's a hard, it's a really hard conversation to have. And, and I, I'm really happy that my school was able to participate in that. We had huge participation. And I think it really shows our lawmakers here in Mississippi, our national lawmakers, that this is an issue that is top of mind for millions of young people across this country. And we should be treated as such. I'll be able to vote um, in next election. And my classmates are only one, two, some of them are three years away. But we will be able to vote. We plan on voting. And this issue is top of mind. 
Paul, you said that you hope this is a message to your Mississippi legislators, lawmakers at the state level. Can you talk a little bit more about why Mississippi as a state specifically needs to hear this message right now? I think that Mississippi is a beautiful state and we live in a gun culture and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, everybody has guns. It's for protection. But to say that someone can buy a gun without any regulation, to say that they don't even have to register or they don't even have to have a background check or 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 if they have mental illness, it, mental illness, they can just buy a gun. I, I just think those things are common sense. Um, and there are things that our state legislator, our governor, and our national leaders can do, but they're choosing not to do it. And they're choosing unsafety. Yeah, talk to me a little bit more about what you and your colleagues consider common sense. If you had the governor sitting right in front of you right now, what steps would you ask him to take? I would ask him to make background checks universally mandatory. And I would ask that we have red flag laws so that people with known mental illness and known instability don't have access to guns that that could kill dozens of people in a matter of minutes. That That's what I would ask them who's in front of me right now. What was the administration's reaction, the teacher's reaction? Did Were they supportive? Did anyone get in trouble? Just tell me about how the people, the leaders of the school, how they handled what you guys did a few days ago. We're thankful to have an extremely supportive administration um, that was integral in the logistics of everything. Now, it was 100% student planned and organized, but the administration really helped us, you know, with time and place and, and making everything most importantly safe. Uh, so the, the, the admin was involved in it, but it was planned by a student. Uh, we we came to him with the proposal, with the plan, with everything organized, and they really helped us get everything straightened out and so that it was a safe but also impactful and moving environment. What is specific to your community that makes this an important conversation to have? Well, I believe that our community, like community, communities across the country, are dealing with the same thing. You know, we, we turn on the news and we see a school shooting or a mass shooting every day, almost every day, you know, and it's disheartening and it's numbing. And that numbness is what we were focusing on. A lot of us, has, a lot of us had become just, you know, this is normal, you know, this happens and move on and continue to go to school and continue to go to work. But it's important for us as a community here in Vicksburg and and Warren County to say, this is something that needs to be front of mind. You know, this is something that is important to hundreds of people, hundreds of young people and millions across the country. You know, Vicksburg is no different than other small communities across the country. 
we don't know who's going to be next. This is important. This should be front of mind. We cannot allow ourselves to make this normal. You know, we cannot allow this to just happen. This is an issue that affects every single young person and parent in this state, in this community, and in this country. And so we have to demand that our state, local, and federal officials do what they have to do to make schools safe. And that is common sense gun reform. That's what I want people to know. Paul Winfield, junior at Warren Central High School, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.